Welcome to the official podcast of Forternia.com. We have the power. I'm your host, AJ, a.k.a. Voodoo Magic, a.k.a. Zor. And today's episode is titled Nothing But Bones. Not just because it's a cool title, which it is, but also because it's an insult that the sorceress directs towards Skeletor in the first episode of Masters of the Universe Revelation Part 2, titled Cleaved in Twain. And this is from that Netflix 2021 series that we've been doing a retrospective review on, and it continues today. Now, the person sitting next to me is much more than a pile of bones. He's been my friend uh, for many years now. He lives in the UK. We actually met each other through another fandom, uh, but it was only amazingly last year that I learned he was a Masters of the Universe fan as a child, too. And who knew? And he enjoyed Masters of the Universe Revelation as well. So I asked him if he would come on and co-host this episode's retrospective with us. And he agreed. And that friend is Eric. So welcome, Eric. Thanks for coming on, buddy. Yes, I am. I'm indeed more than bones, but I am, however, wearing a vaguely appropriate <laughs> top for the... <laughs> It's kind of skeletorish, but yes. <laughs> and it's very fitting. And yeah. um, and before we start this retrospective, um, I was hoping we could talk about how Eric became a fan. You know, I was talking uh, to you, Eric, a couple weeks ago about the uh, question itself. How do you get, you know, how did you get into Motu? And it's a question that never gets old. And, and that's why it's such a popular forum topic, because everyone's story is a little different, a little the same, but consistently interesting because we're all different people coming from different perspectives. Some are rich, some are poor, some are straight, some are gay, some are from loving families, some are from broken homes. But we all have this common thread that unites us. We are Motu fans, Masters of the Universe fans. So, and now it's your turn, Eric, to share. So can you tell us a little bit about your origin story, your childhood entry into this fandom? My villain origin story. Um, <laughs> um, that's well, what it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could yet be. Um, I was born at the tail end of the 70s, so the, the 80s were like my formative years. And um, let's see, I, re I remember in primary school, because uh, we've got different cultural backgrounds. I was in Britain, of course. Um, for us, it kind of started out, I remember we were, most of the kids were about like um, Batman, as in the 60s TV show, because it was re-airing that time, Batman show, and um, of course, Superman had just come out. You'll believe a man can fly. And around that time, there was this cultural shift in kids' entertainment where it went from Superman and Batman and it, it went into Star Wars, Transformers, and, of course, He-Man, um, there was a degree of Ghostbusters as well, but Ghostbusters was more of, um, it was like a team of guys in our world, 
whereas something like He-Man, Transformers, that stuff like that, it had world-building stuff. And, of course, we didn't realize it at the time, but um, Master of the Universe, it very much plugged into those mythological things. And it's something where, as you grow older, you think, oh, it's He-Man, it's Skeletor, it's a bit campy pantomime. But as you grow older, especially if you learn the behind-the-scenes history of the stuff, you you come to appreciate much more. I think it's... Um, back then, it was basically like he was Superman, he just couldn't fly. And it had that great villain, Skeletor. He was like the, the Megatron to He-Man's Optimus Prime. And a lot like Optimus Prime, He-Man, they, they had positive role models for kids. And as I understand it, even a lot of girls back then were really into Masters of the Universe. And, of course, that made Mattel think in terms of, all well, let's do She-Ra. Um, I um, was one of the kids who read the comic that came out. Um, I did have a number one issue of She-Ra because it came included in the He-Man comic, and they kind of, like, split them up at that point. And it's one of my biggest regrets that, um, oh, God, back in 97-ish, we moved, and I had to leave a load of stuff behind, and all my He-Man comics and that were left behind, including that number one issue, She-Ra. And I thought, oh, if only I'd have kept them. Um now, only had U one toy UK comics right yes yeah uk had their separate line of comics that I, I never actually read but i've heard they're wonderful and they have like their own continuity and yep. um and i think they ran for a good like five years or something like that it, it went on for a while i think they went through like a slight um the price changed to a bit more expensive, I think, whether around the time when I stopped getting them. But um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was Master of the Universe slash He-Man. And I think I went to She-Ra Comics as well, because for me, it was one big continuity. It yeah. was. I mean, it was He-Man. They were brother and sister. But Master of the Universe, all that, it was... It was big, it was brash, it was colourful, but it in as in my adult years, I've come to look back on that scene in that Tom Hanks film, Big, where he's he's talking about, well, you know, how did you have so much success with making these toys? And he's basically saying, oh, I, I just put these toys together with these toys, and they they were amazing. And you think back now on the kind of toys for He Man and the the characters. They had nothing in common with one another whatsoever. Like there was a half bee hybrid thing and Merman and Skeletor was this just skull floating on a blue body. Um, <laughs> That's a skin had, color, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Even Teela looked different on the, on the toy compared to the what they, she was on the, co the cartoon and comic. She had that sort of snake cobra thing. The snake um, yeah. And then, of course, they brought in the Snake Men, which to me, I was like, oh, yes, because I was very much about um, natural history growing up, but I loved cold-blooded animals. So for me, the Snake Men, I was like, yes. And I was there when the Masters of the Universe live-action film came out. I didn't watch it at the cinema, 
but I do remember there was that kind of wave of disappointment, which was basically because none of them looked like how they should you imagine they would, because you wanted it to be a live action version of the cartoon, right? Right. It wasn't that, and it was largely set on Earth. Now, as I've grown up, I love that film. Frank Langella's or Langella, I don't know how you pronounce it, him Langella. as Skeletor, it's just a perfect... He is chewing the scenery, but he's like he's like the emperor in Star Wars. I love his performance as Skeletor. I only had one toy that was Modulok, which I think was more of a She-Ra thing. It was the one where you put our limbs together in yeah. different configurations. It was like a toy of the thing in hindsight. And I used to like take the tail of the, like this slimy tail. I made it go on for a head. And I made some really grotesque stuff thinking about, it, but it allowed you to get like, I got three of them. And the more you got, the more limbs you could fit on it. It was great. You made your own toy with Modulock. It was fantastic. That is hilarious. I had no idea you only had one toy. You had? Did you not yeah. have interest in any of the other actual figures? Were you just I more was, comics guy? Yeah, I, I got quite a lot of Zoid figures. They were like clockwork robotic dinosaurs, but they were model kits. Yeah. And I got a lot of Lego. It was like things you that helped you like modulock you, you could make your own stuff um i got a fair number of transformers and i think on star wars i got quite a few things also when it came to he-man it was another thing and it was it wasn't in the same sort of proportions as the other toys so you couldn't really play with them together um but I was a bit. I was more into the cartoon and stuff, and it, yeah. they did have that element where the, the action figures didn't always look like they did on the cartoon, of course. But my my uh, my favourite character would probably be, um, weirdly enough, kind of Merman, and he hardly featured much. But it was purely because I was really into sharks. And he was the only one to do with aquatic stuff. And he was a bit monstrous. And I, I liked that guy. Although when I watched the cartoon, it again, he had this gargly voice. And he didn't sound like you'd imagine that toy to sound. But yeah, I was into it. But I didn't play with it like I played with Transformers and stuff. I got so, you. Um, yeah. But Maybe again, the, the toys were the too basic for you in a way. Because it sounds like what you were interested in regarded more building and... Um, yeah. I mean, also, it was at that stage where back then, and the Master of the Universe toys were like this, where the only articulation they had was at the um, the shoulders and the hip. You could very stiffly move the arms and legs. The Master of the Universe toys, they did that sort of, like, you hear the parodies of these, like, kung fu action grip. He-Man toys were kind of like the forefront of that. I do remember they they had a lot of these sort of spring-loaded action things. And He-Man and Skeletor, they had this little button at the back where their armor looked battle-damaged. It sort of sprung round, and you could make it look like one had hit the other and caused a lot of damage. Um, they were very gimmicky, He-Man toys, I remember. But I, I do have fond memories of going into things like Woolworths and stuff, and you would see Star Wars toys, Transformers, 
um, at a certain point, the Ghostbusters toys, and you had an array of He-Man toys and figures. And I had these very fond memories of just looking at them in the packaging and just sort of like admiring the the sculpture in a way, because you don't realize it because you're a little kid. But what you're really doing is you are admiring art. You're admiring a sculpture of something. It's just gone through engineering to make it articulated. But, um, yeah, those toys, they were not very, they were articulated so you could have battles with them, but they weren't like, um, you know, G.I. Joe ones. That was at the forefront where they did the elbows and things like that. And, of course, nowadays where you have McFarlane and Necker and stuff, it's it's what we wanted back then. Yeah, um, that's what I have behind me now. These figures have 30 yeah. points of articulation. Right. Over 30 points. Yeah. I mean, do, do their um, ankles move as well? Yeah. Yeah. Just, and they're yeah. double jointed Just everywhere. Ankles. And it's, and you can po pose them in these action uh, poses. You know, if you have, what are these yeah. stands called? Kaiser stands, I think they are. You can have them kicking and doing, you know, backflips and stuff like yeah. that. And it's. Of course, really I was just going to say, I remember um, the guy who made um, the, the He-Man stuff. He said that at the time, most of the toys were like the action figures. They were expressionless. And he said he gave He-Man that aggressive look. And I remember at the time there was that, yeah, they they look expressive. They they were more um, characteristic in in terms of the sculpts and nowadays what you have behind you that they are so much more they are like the cartoon figures come to life what you have there yeah and they did actually come out with a filmation line that actually as you were saying before that a lot of the figures didn't look like their filmation counterparts in the cartoon he-man and the masters of the universe well they did come out uh, the classics uh, club gray skull where they actually produced them and I love them. They're my favorite figures. And uh, they look like their Filmation counterparts. And it's a, it's a Filmation fan's dream for anyone that actually wanted those figures to, to, to look like what they saw on the television show. And speaking about the um, television show, so since that was the root of your fandom, um, that yeah. was what your fandom rested upon. Um, that was the gateway drug, right? <laughs> that was what you got on a drip feed every week or so back then. And yeah. you didn't realize it was a commercial, like the Transformers cartoons, right? But they had storylines, they had lore, and it was this sort of cocaine being given to you every week. And you're like, yeah, give me more, give me more, give me more. You know, it doesn't get enough credit. Yes, it was designed or it was con the concept was to sell toys. But uh, Lou Scheimer, who was behind it, I mean, they wrote this huge Bible for it. And there was so much world building. And I think it's at least a third of those episodes out of the, um, is it 130? Mm. That's um, quite a few of them. Yeah. A third of them doesn't even have Skeletor as the enemy. You know, we're just meeting all yeah. these new villains. They're, the villains are not figures. They're not toys. Hmm. And it, it's it's such wonderful world building and such a wonderful cartoon that I fell in love with those too. Um, I had the toys, but it was the filmation cartoon that my fandom, it's the shoulders my fandom rests upon. And I loved it as well. But it, it went through fast. Now, I don't know see if you remember um in the uk as far as i remember reading and um it was on some website maybe it was battle ram blog i'm not sure what website um but i remember reading that the she-ra show went on for years past the um airtime on the united states where i guess maybe you were airing 
the shows in Britain on Saturdays and you didn't go through the episodes as fast because in, in the United mm-hmm. States, it was 83 to 85 for He-Man and then 85 to, I guess, 87 was She-Ra. But you guys kept airing new episodes, I think, into the year 1990. And um, that surprises me. So do you remember it all when that aired? Or No, I mean, it's all because it was just like part of my formative Mm -hmm. years growing up. You know, it's stuff you experience. If I had known back then, like that was in the 80s, like even if you think in terms of films, a classic film was being brought out every one or two months. Yeah. Stuff like Transformers, Hema. These were timeless classics. We didn't know it at the time. We were just cruising through it like that was our water. Um, so I, I, I don't I, – I have vague memories of She-Ra kind of outlasting He-Man in terms of the TV show. Um but I mean, I don't even remember if it was on Saturdays or if it was like they put that on after school. Or I, I, I really don't remember what the um, viewing thing was for UK back then. Yeah, I just yeah. remember it was I devoured it. <laughs> it was the cartoon. It was the comic. Um, I will say that um, with my uh, my upbringing. My parents incentivized me to, or at least my mother incentivized me to read comics because you hear a lot of tales about, well, my parents didn't want comics. For me, um, I, you know, much lower age, I think I got from Magic Roundabout and then I went into Disney comics and then I went into things like Zoids and He Man. Yeah. Because when my, my parents, more my mother read them to me and they had jokes. I wanted to understand the jokes. So I sort of taught myself to read. So I got them. And then when it came to He-Man and Transformers and stuff, I, I, I got the storylines in a way that you wouldn't where it's someone just reading it to you. So in a way, I could say He-Man and I suppose She-Ra, but more He-Man, I think, came first in comics. It's I had that to thank for part of my... um. My education, in a way, it it helped me to learn about the world. And we don't think, because we take, you know, we take the Mickey out of like the PSAs they had on the cartoons and stuff. But it was it was a it was an educational tool. Um, but yeah, it was it was the comics and cartoons. It all sort of compounded in one for me. And I do remember the mini comics had a different storyline for the origins of yeah. Skeletor. Uh- Oh, yeah, that was more of a barbarian He-Man. But with those yes. UK comics by um, those London editions, you know, you it, it doesn't surprise me that you weren't very into the toys because you're more mm, c- cerebral than I am, I think. You know, with the, but I mean, I, I was for Transformers. I got the toys. but um, Yeah, but I didn't like those toys because they were too complicated. And it took forever ah. to play with. So we were, they were mirroring one another here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was like it would take 15 minutes just for Starscream yeah. to turn into a jet. And by the time I transformed <laughs> it, I'm like, I'm bored, you know. But with He-Man, yeah. you know, you could just take it out and immediately start playing. But back to those comics you were saying, um, like I said, I had never experienced them. But as far as I know, aware, read, heard that those comics were very cerebral, more than um 
even the comics that you know came out in the U.S. that he uh, He Man was more of a thinking man's hero, not just because of the um, you know the the rules against showing violence. You know, He Man can't slash solve problems with his sword, stabby stabby, but but. Also, it was just he was solving problems with his mind, and they were very intricate, elaborate stories. And, um, you know, I really wish, you know, I have to check into some sort of omnibus of it because I really should make it. I imagine there must be like they have with the original Alien and Predator comics. Mm. I'd be surprised if the original publishers haven't brought out, uh, you know, the classic years because I I think they did that with Transformers too. But you're saying about the, um, like, they couldn't show the violent stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you might remember one of my favorite cartoons growing up back then, again, primary school, um, I got the set of DVD. It still stands up. Dungeons and Dragons, yeah, which is kind of timely now because they're doing the, the new movie. Now, on that, Eric, ironically, Eric was the cavalier. He had a shield. Apparently, his original plan for that character was for him to have a shield and a sword. And the studio executive said, no, that's too violent. We can't have him have a sword. And what happened the very next year, He-Man came out. He only has a sword. And in fact, in the the miniature comics, he had an axe. They changed it to a power sword. And of course, originally it was two swords. They came together. Unlock Grey Skull, which was it was actually like a storage case for the figures, <laughs> but um, they didn't do that in the cartoon. It was just one sword. Um, like they didn't have the um, Panthor in the cartoon. You expected to see Battle Cat for He Man, Skeletor, and Panthor. He hardly ever had it in the cartoon. It, yeah, like you in... expected him to have it. It was for the toys, but not the cartoon. Yeah, I think Panthor in the filmation series maybe appeared five times, six times. But yeah, he really didn't appear that much. And there was a lot of characters, even like Triclops, that only appeared in several episodes. You had the normal staples, you know, which was, you know, especially in the villain side, Skeletor and then Beastman, right? Evil Lynn. Um, and then sometimes Merman. But then the other ones were like here and there. But um, it's mostly Beast Man. He pretty much featured in every episode. He really suffered on the against Skeletor's jibes. He was always saying, yeah. ah, You're right, thing, ah, my baffles, <laughs> all that. He, he really, and, and, and although Beast Man has that kind of slovenly look, in hindsight, like he's got a boss which is really grinding him down. You expect him to go, Oh, he, he's probably. At the beginning of his career in evil, Beastman was probably much more energized than like he's like that after 10 years of being browbeaten by Skeletor. Beastman and Evil Lynn were the ones that were always with Skeletor in the cartoon. You were doing Skeletor's voice. I, I guess I have to ask yes. real quick is. Yeah, yeah well, you're bumbling, Bob. Yeah. Oh, so, you. So. He Man for me was not about He Man. He Man Master of the Universe cartoon for me was about Skeletor. Yeah. I tuned in for Skeletor. I didn't tune in for He Man. I never knew. uh, Well, where I was getting at is you were doing the voice, and I never Mm. knew in what countries they dubbed things. And so you're confirming for me that in, in the UK, it was 
the normal voice yeah, for Skeletor. Out, I, I don't think they dubbed in. They didn't need to. Like America, He Man had that America. Anyone, everyone had that American accents in the cartoon. Yeah, show. I didn't think they needed to either. But one day I stumbled upon like um, a toy commercial. Um, and on YouTube, and I wanted to watch like some vintage toy commercial, you know, and I recognized the toy commercial because it was like one of the first and it starts out he man, he man. And uh, the dad is like, who's the guy with the big muscles, you know, and the kid who looks like actor Kirk Cameron, I think it is actor Kirk Cameron, very young. Um, he says, um, you know, he's he man, dad, the most powerful man in the universe. But when I played this video, everyone had British accents, you know, he's he man, dad. I mean, I'm sorry. Oh, they, yeah, they they might have dubbed it because that would have probably, I'm thinking, yeah. this is probably the toy company yes. thinking they have to dub things for cultural appeal because the whole point of that, it was meant to be the kid is you, the parents are your parents. So that's probably purely a toy company thing. But for the cartoons, yeah, no changes whatsoever. I don't know if they had slightly different edits. I don't know. But voices all the same voice actors yeah it was we had the exact same gotcha stuff that was all universal to us all right my friend i think it's time we uh continue our retrospective series of the episodes of masters of the universe revelation today being part two episode one uh cleaved in twain now, um, in the audience, if this is your first time listening, we'll be doing this chronologically, similar to a sporting event broadcast from beginning to end. I will deliver the play-by-play, -play, and then myself and Eric will stop me at points where we might want to add some commentary. And let's not forget to caveat that we are fans, but it's hard to remember everything. So if we do get something wrong or miss something, we apologize in advance. You know, we're, we're both uh, fans just like you and we got nothing but love for every single one of you. So Eric, are you ready? Yes. All right. I am. I will say this starts out with what I was saying with foreshadowing. There is some force symbolic foreshadowing. This episode starts off with on the walls where I didn't realize it the first time rewatching this made me go, is that? And then I realized, Oh, it is. And it's something that feeds in right to the last episodes. I don't okay. know if you picked up on it. But... Well, well, once we get there, just yeah. call it out. So this episode starts with the amazing intro again, uh, that we saw in the beginning of part one with the glorious masters of the universe artwork. Um, I think by Earl Norum, um, animated like a motion comic, uh, accompanied by the fantastic narration by actor Liam Cunningham. Then it begins with a flashback and with this wonderful somber piece of music, uh, scored by the amazing bear McCreary. We find a young Tila Na before she was a sorceress in the round chamber lit by candles uh, called the Castle Grayskull Ceremonial Chamber, chamber uh, per the official art book of this series. And uh, there are ancient symbols, I think what you're getting at, Eric, yeah. um, carved into the walls depicting what looked like a phoenix surrounded yes. by snakes. And there's a hawk descending on a serpent to each side. Yep. And of yep. course, that comes in majorly in the visions that they're 
Like yeah, it foreshadows the the death of God scene that yeah. Evelyn will experience in a future yeah. episode. And it's beautiful that you have them bookmarking a phoenix rising out of the ashes. And it's mm-hmm. everything is there and you don't realize it, but that is how it will everything will resolve. Yeah. And and what's great, and as we'll continue to discuss, there's a lot, I think a lot of foreshadowing going on in this episode, and uh, they do a great job with that. But yeah, that's the yeah. I didn't notice it at first, but I think it was my second viewing. I'm like, this is the death of God scene. This is when we see the, the snake, yeah. uh, the, the snake bite the ram, and then you know the falcon pick up the snake, and the snake bites the falcon, and and yeah. who knows exactly what that means? It never was really explained. My guess is is it's the um, they're each um, religious symbols, the yeah, ram, the snake, the falcon, and different religions, different. There's a lot of mythology in there, yeah. A lot yeah. of symbolism, yeah. But, Did you uh, also pick up on the symbolism of the um, the sorceress to be what she calls baby Tila? Little bird, yeah. My little bird. And what does she become in the <laughs> epic duel? She becomes the sorceress, like, you know, the same colors as the hawk. She yep. becomes the bird. So she is literally saying, you are my little bird. And she ultimately becomes, you know, the 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 sorceress who well, she becomes her champion by becoming the sorceress, and she becomes the little bird becoming the phoenix. Yeah, yeah, and that's also the 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 animal of the sorceress, at least the good ones, mm. uh, yeah. seem to be this 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 bird like motif. Mm. Um, Evil Lynn has a bat. bat. Head, yeah. So she's representing, although you never see her become a bat. I don't think in no, the, um, no, no, jaw, yeah. which I was waiting for because of the headdress. But yeah. All right. So there are bowls at Tila's uh, or Tila Nas. Excuse me. That's her mother's name. Tila Nas feet, uh, which contain what appears to be uh, blue and orange paint. There is a little grounding tool, um, and with her fingers, she paints markings on her hands, her feet her legs, her arms, um, even her face. And next we see that uh, red-haired baby crying in a basket and a handsome man appears and it's Duncan and he's young. And he lifts the baby. He has no beard. He looks kind of Superman-ish. Clark Kent. Yeah, he he was very chiseled, you know. He's he's still built, right? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, he's definitely a handsome man, right? Yeah. In his his prime. And... uh, so he lifts the baby out of the basket and reveals that this little infant is actually baby Tila. When he consoles the baby, there, there, little Tila. Then Tila's mother, using the same blue paint she used on herself, makes a similar pattern on Tila's forehead, like her own, saying that this blue marking she puts on the forehead is a blessing, one that will manifest when Tila needs it the most. Then this is the moment that drops a bombshell. Um, Many Masters of the Universe fans, especially Filmation fans, understood Duncan as the adoptive father of Tila. But here in this scene with Tila's mother by her side, Duncan says the words that heavily implies to the audience that Duncan is not just Tila's guardian or adopted father, but her real father by blood, her biological father, 
when he tells Tila's mother uh, the words, I'll never leave our baby's side. And these two people, these lovebirds, uh, pun intended, um, also reveal they are romantic together. This is no longer a, situa a situation like we saw in the 1983 filmation show where a man in arms is receiving psychic signals from the sorceress to find baby Tila in a bird's nest. No, uh, Duncan's involved here, um, you know, as that... Uh, American uh, talk show host Maury Povich used to famously say, "You <laughs> are the father," yeah. and uh, and Duncan certainly is here. You know, um, it's not quite made clear why, in hindsight, they had to keep all that a secret from Tila, or even that they had, were in a relationship together. I, I. I, I I'm a little confused. Like it worked within the episode, but you, I did end up thinking, why did they keep it a secret? What was the purpose of that? I guess it was to protect her. Um, you know, and look, I, I actually love this idea. And, um, you know, it was, it was confirmed what you're saying by Roboto in the most dangerous man in the Eternia uh, revelation episode that Tila still perceives uh, herself as adopted as she grows into a adult head, adulthood. So mm -hmm. although Duncan is her real dad, he pretends to be her adoptive dad. And to me, well, how selfless is that? Right. I mean, imagine it. Imagine you are someone's real father, but you say you aren't all in a further attempt. How I take it of keeping your kid's lineage from being discovered by evildoers. You know, imagine what you are sacrificing for yourself by propagating this lie to your own child. You know, you're sacrificing what's traditionally seen as a deeper bond that your child is going to feel to you, uh, feels feel towards you. Um, unfortunate, but tr usually true, you know, a bond that usually comes from a child knowing that you are his or her biological parents, you know, biological dads don't get that. You're not my real dad, you know, resentment that often can build within non-biological parents and children. And Duncan gave that all away. Uh, so this lie to me, is taken as like a selfless act and provides an extra layer of security. I think, you know, not having a hand in the, in the intimate relationship that created this baby, this person does afford you an extra wall of ignorance, you know, um, when it comes to unanswered questions about her mother, you know, you make yourself the surrogate parent, you no longer have firsthand knowledge and naturally have less answers. Yeah. I mean, I, I took it as a, they're protecting her from play. I just, I, I don't know. I, I hope if they, they are getting a follow on series, aren't they for this? I, I hope it's explored more in there. Like there, there should have been a, a more of a decision process because, because I mean, doing that, probably gave Tila some emotional issues by doing that as well. Um, there, yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 within the scene though, it, it definitely, you definitely um, feel that emotional weight with it, I guess. 
And this was a, an intentional change because um, Masters of the Universe Revelation, um, we know, is a spiritual sequel to the classic filmation series, um, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And it's referred to as a spiritual sequel because it couldn't be a legitimate sequel legally to that show. But the producer came out and said, you know, every episode counts, um, that this filmation show is what we're sequelizing. And in that show, Duncan was not presented as Tila's biological father, but like we said, presented as her adoptive father. And Duncan actually said in uh, that episode, Tila's Quest, that I was referring to that Tila's real father was one of the greatest men he ever knew, that he gave his life in battle so Eternia could exist in peace. And only after death did the sorceress give Tila up, uh, knowing she couldn't protect her on the, on her own, you know, with the passing of her husband in Castle Grayskull. Basically, Tila needed a, a real home. But they, yeah, that, there's shades of Luke Skywalker and Anakin and Vader and all the rest. Although, interestingly, in Revelation, um, Adam does weirdly come up, like he has got a pseudo-messiah Mm -hmm. figure um storyline in this where he's literally brought back from the dead and he's mm -hmm. this you know the prophet etc sacrifices but, himself for everyone and then yeah but but Tila kind of shares a similar thing mm -hmm. in this in in some respects yeah um well this was uh producer Ted Biaselli in like I said indicated that all of these 130 filmation episode counted in this continuity, but the creators did take several creative liberties and made a few changes to the lore. And this one was it. And uh, maybe we only see part of the picture because as far as I know, as far as they said, I mean, Kevin Smith even talked about a third one. So if they do do a trilogy, maybe there's, maybe this will even make more sense as we see the follow-up and then the follow-up to the yeah. follow-up, you know? Yeah. So. I'm sure it's they they've got stuff in the background that yeah. they might not have had time or they tried to put in a script and may, maybe they had to cut stuff out and because of mm. running time. Um, one, one of the things I do like about this show is how efficient it is. They get so much in each yeah. episode and they go places where you think, are they really going to do that? Oh, okay, they did. And they don't just tease it. They go full on. And there's stuff they do in there. But, I mean, this was one of these things. We were, you know, the, this revelation about, you know, Teela's parented her. Because it's not just, oh, they're her parents. But, you know, it's... It's got this whole magical lineage with the sorceress. Mm -hmm. And it's not just her, because that comes into play when she heals Adam and she has to send out the psychic message. There has to be something beyond, oh, I'm just going to pick up a magic power orb and I'm going to do it. Because then you say, well, what was the point of the sorceress? The sorceress is giving her that lineage to make it feel like, yeah, she can leapfrog it without training because she has got that seed of something inside her and we're seeing that i mean it is not just that she's given birth to her but she literally gives her that blessing on the forehead and she makes that um prophecy about it will 
you know, when she needs it most. Mm -hmm. Though she doesn't, she doesn't explain what it is. And of course, initially, when you see later on in the story, she heals. It could have just been she's got the power of healing, but no, she's she has got the the inner sorceress, the power. She has that inside her in a multitude of ways. It's just yeah. she needs to exercise it like a muscle. Well, yeah, it kind of comes out in the words to Duncan. You know, this um, well, the soon-to-be sorceress um, asked Duncan to train Tila to protect herself because one day Tila will come to protect him and all of Eternia. So it's kind of foreshadowing how important Tila is going to become. And um, and like you said, she affectionately calls uh, Tila her little bird. And um, Tila now says goodbye to her baby, telling her that she loves her. And um, she says that it's time for her mother to see the entire universe. And then as she gently caresses Duncan's face, she lovingly says, my Duncan, and tears stream down his face as they embrace and she kisses him on the forehead. Well, that's where you, if you had any lingering doubt or maybe yeah. that, that, that removes any doubt, they are definitely an, an item. Exactly. Although you kind of wonder, again, you wonder in, in hindsight, well, She's not actually going away. The sorceress will still be in the castle. They can visit anytime they want. But um <laughs> <Ecological it's>, visit. <laughs> Yeah, or or is it that there would have been maybe there would have been a period like ten years or something where she has to come back from the hereafter. It doesn't really go into that. It's it's depicted as though she's never gonna see them again, and yet yeah. they do. Well, they clearly see each other, but he, he, she'll never be able to be her mother, at least hmm. not openly, right? Especially, I mean, her and Tila saw so it. I needed to set up a little crash in Castle Grayskull, a little nursery. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, all right. Uh, walking back to the uh, center of the room, uh, Tila's mother makes a gesture with her hands and the uh, dais lights up uh, underneath her, revealing all these cool glowing uh, inscriptions in blue light that kind of reminds me in a way of the, you know, partly the aesthetic of the movie Tron and then partly, you know, the aesthetic from Lord of the Rings, you know, like the... Um... It reminded me of Skyrim. Whenever you oh. do the dragon's voice and okay. all the engravings, it sort of lights up. And the markings on um, the sorceress to be on her body remind him, I forget, he, Fenris out of Dragon Age 2. He's got a lot of um, magic that's, it's sort of um, actual magical particle stuff that's been tattooed into him in very similar ways. So I don't know if the art department took Fenris as um, an inspiration for what they've done here. But um, it's 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 nice to see this sort of um, light occult stuff being brought into it. Well, you're talking about inspirations. You might uh, like this, Eric, um, mm. or appreciate this. In Well, let's talk Star Trek. You know in Star Trek, okay. there's the, uh, the language of the Klingon race is called Klingon. Right. Oh and, yeah, yeah. And it's a fully functional language it's that rings, yeah. That fans can use to communicate. There's even a Klingon yeah. dictionary 
that one can obtain from the bookstore. Yes. I don't know if it's still in print. There's a great episode of Fraser where he, ironically, Kelsey Grammer was in Star Trek, and they have this um, storyline where one, uh, someone on in the radio station, he has this sort of feud going with him, and he wants it, him to teach him um, Yiddish because his son has to do a bar mitzvah, and he. He teaches him how to say it in Klingon. So when he reads it out to the, the audience, it's, um, yeah, that's probably the best use of Klingon. But I remember it's actually Frasier. You know, I like Frasier and I don't remember that episode, but I do remember Klingon being used uh-huh. in a couple episodes of the Big Bang Theory um, to um, a very humorous effect. But, um, well, you can get university courses in it. it it's oh, a proper... Wow. It's treated as an actual language. (laughs) Well, apparently, this is uh, getting to my point, where um, apparently these these inscriptions you see here underneath Tilana is a language called Kudakesh, which the writing is created fictionally by the previous sorceress, uh, Kudak Ungol, the one you see in Praternia in, in heaven, in Valhalla, but created in reality by Revelation director um, Patrick Stannard. And apparently it is a fully functional script, fully functional vocabulary. And like one day, if if we both learned it, we could communicate this way in Kudakesh back to forth, <laughs> which is pretty cool. I mean, I don't know if we're ever going to do it. We'll have to but... learn to speak it. <laughs> but it's wild that, it's it's wild for me and and exciting for me when someone gets that deep with it, you know, that it's mm-hmm. there if you want to go there. And those inscriptions actually mean things. So well, I remember though, even in um, Return of the Jedi, the Ewok language and Huttese that they had they got actual language experts on to oh, figure wow. out a whole. It wasn't just gibberish. You'd think it is. But it's yeah. it's not. So when they it's really neat when you find out these things like this, a little code. And of course, when you're a little kid, you go, I want to learn it. And it, 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 because you think, oh, I can, you don't know anyone else who speaks it, but you want to be able to, it's my thing. It's my little language thing. Yeah. 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 My parents would never learn that. (laughs) Communicate that with me. (laughs) I'm learning a new language, French. Yeah. Yeah. French. French is, yeah. (laughs) It's human episodes. Well, maybe uh, in our off hours, Eric, we'll, we'll study Kudakesh. We'll yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> maybe we'll do a whole podcast episode. I'll have you back on. <laughs> yeah. do it we'll in Kudakesh. And people will be like, what? Tell <laughs> so you what, you, you'll have to get YouTube to do that as a, a subtitle option. <laughs> English, French, Spanish, Kudakesh. <laughs> oh, that would be excellent. All right. It's a date. Five years from now. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right um now all right so now what is also uh different in revelation in comparison to the filmation series is um there wasn't a filmation episode back in the day i guess 1984 uh called origin of the sorceress that depicts this event that happened here and um and the sorceress who held the job before Tila's mother takes it, her predecessor, Kudak Ungol, was actually present during this transformation when she lowered down the dais to the uh, 
to the pool of power. Um, and she passed a baton. But in Revelation, you know, Kudak Ungol, her predecessor, is nowhere to be found. I don't know. Perhaps she's in the side room eating nachos or, 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 or maybe she died, perhaps, because we did see her um, in Praternia, in heaven, in part one. Um, and yet when Evil Lynn becomes the sorcerer, it's literally Skeletor going, here you go. And just waves a sword at her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's, a, I guess, there has been a debate if she's a real sorceress. You know, he mm. lended her some of her power. It's certainly not to the traditional way. No. Um, so, and, uh, but I guess we'll get there. So, yeah. I mean, you could also say that maybe in those days, that was the ritual then and there's no reason why a ritual can't be modified or maybe that was the ritual in order to attain a certain kind of ability that the normal sorceress wouldn't or because she talks to Teela eventually about um you know she has to it's it's like the jedi where she said i, I have to sever connections and, and yet Teela says well i don't want to and apparently mm. that's fine <laughs> um but um yeah, I, I get the feeling this was to sort of plug her into the universe in a, a different way. Because yeah. Skeletor and Evil Lynn, they do very much its brute force. It's tearing open things as opposed to opening doors and more yeah. of a two-way thing. So we don't know what the this ceremony completely involved, but the upshot was she left them for a while or, or something. And the, you know, the, really it's about leaving Tila. Yeah. She leaves, uh, she, she leaves as her mother and she returns as the sorceress. And of course, later on, she returns as her mother. So it's, it's a kind of weaving yeah. DNA strand. Now her leaving at this moment is a very uh, tender moment, and we and we finally get to witness the pull of power, and it appears to be a underground lake because in the previous filmation episode we see her lowered, and we see it um, titled or um, referred to as the pull of power, but we never see it. But here we do finally, and uh, per the art book of this show, they say the surface of the lake is actually not water, but a doorway, a uh, portal to an unknown area that doesn't rest in another dimension, but actually between dimensions. Yeah, it's like a Doctor Who type mm -hmm. weirdness thing that just gives the, it gives the, it's basically the writers giving themselves wriggle room. They can do stuff at a future date, I imagine. Yeah. And, but this is apparently where the new sorceress can commune with the power of Grayskull. So as she steps inside the lake, uh, the markings Tila uh, Tila's mother painted on herself and baby Tila begins to glow, uh, which causes Tila to cry. Yeah. Cause at that and, point you get the idea there is a connect cause baby Tila doesn't know what's happening to her. Her mother's underwater, mm -hmm. but the moment that happens, it glows and that causes Tila some sort of pain. We don't, we assume it's to do with the connection between them, but they are connected at that point. Yeah. Yep. And we're listening to this crying of the baby and Tila cries herself, which just really emphasizes the sacrifice that she is making here. You know, what she's giving up, it, it really tugs on the heartstrings, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and speaking of 
strings. That somber tune uh, played in the background of the scene. I do like that bit of music. Uh, yeah. With string instruments composed by Barry McCreary. It's just masterful here. Okay. And uh, it's just another example of elevating the material you know, deepening yep. the emotional impact of already an emotional scene. It had mother- resonance here. Yes, yes, yes. And it hits the viewer in the field so much more because of that music. Yeah. Well, you do get the feeling, in like it could have been so easy, right, for the sorceress to sort of wave her hand and uh, like, like Orko does with some of his spells. She could have done this and then step through a portal but yeah. here you do the music really ele- elevates it, as you say to it feels like it's got spiritual significance yeah there's a there's a there's a you feel almost like you are in this echoing chamber with her you get this this is something through the ages this is not just another thing the sorceress does this is her thing this is her becoming All right, so the screen flashes bright and dissolves into present day. And uh, we get a close-up of a much older Tilana, Sorceress of Greyskull, uh, behind a force field, looking into the eyes of a much older Duncan, moments before Duncan is blasted to the ground and then bound with this like purple magic. And uh, Evil Lynn reveals herself to be the source of this magic as she steps up from the depths below and is artistically drawn here with such a sinister smile that I just adore. And using her wand, Evelyn levitates and tosses Andra and Tila on the ground next to Duncan, uh, bound with those similar uh, purple magical ties. And Prince Adam isn't bound, though. The stab that he took is perceived to be uh, debilitating enough and is tossed to the floor next to the prisoners by Beastman. And and Duncan looks extremely concerned about Prince Adam's health. Because, I mean, just just to uh, frame this, this was part two. So we Mm -hmm. had waited several months. And the episode before that, it did look like Adam had been killed. Killed Here, you find... Yeah. Here, you find out he's not... He's sort of, like, mortally wounded here. Um, So what you... he'd been run through you know he'd just come back to life only to be cast out again that it was a sleight of hand thing so it's not he's just going oh instead of going i'm dead he's he's, (laughs) yeah and all this is happening while um a skeleton yeah he catch i'm I'm probably doing poetry I'm going to re- keep bouncing back from Skeletor to Skelegod because the action figure of him in his form is actually called Skelegod. You know, in, that's what in, Kevin Smith was calling him in the um, after-show yeah. thing, Skelegod. So, yeah. so I might bounce back and cool name. Either one is good, but yeah. um, he catches up the viewers uh, orally with a, a poem he created. You know, yes. recounting the major pop plot points of Revelation Part One, and I enjoy it. It's a clever alternative to putting a traditional recap trailer. You know, between well, it's it's exposition done in a very skeletary way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he certainly loves to hear himself talk, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. 
But he so, does that sort of gloaty, you know, fetch the sword, the sorceress cried, and it was all for Skeletor. Oh, no, I love it. I love it. He's he's chewing scenery. And, and Skeletor... He is such a diva. <laughs> he is. Skeletor, he likes to be the big muscular, but he's such a diva. And uh, Skelegod here says that the power tastes like copper. And when Evelyn inquires what tastes yes. like copper, what tastes like copper, my lord? This is my favorite skeletal line of the whole thing. Yeah, Skelegod answers time, I think. Or perhaps it's just the, just stars. the stars. That's a beautiful one. It also, it encapsulates someone who has been given a completely different perspective. Their mind works in a completely different way. This is something that doctor who sometimes plays around with with the doctor he's not human he's a gallifreyan he is literally plugged into time and sometimes they have the character do that here you get a similar thing like he is you know some people they um they see sounds it's that there's a condition i forget what it is but they see sounds or they smell things it's a weird sort of multi-layered thing. Mm -hmm. And him saying this, you know, oh, it tastes like copper time, I think, or perhaps it's just the stars. And then he says, oh, or perhaps it's just his, basically his appetite here. He's finally got what he wants. Yeah. But it, I love that line it, because he's, he's still adjusting to the, because, okay, he's got a new physical, but he's adjusting to what he's now plugged into. And he is operating on a level Skeletor, no living mortal is meant to operate on because they're not typically, not, not that they can survive it, but they aren't given this glimpse into eternity. Mm. He is basically saying he is eternity now. He, and what the other thing I love about this, it gives you a little hint of that live action film where Skeletor talks in that kind of a, a way once he becomes this, um, you know, the cosmic rays have shone upon him and says, I am a god. And he, he is perceiving reality like a woven fabric. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a, the, the Akashic record sort of thing. This is what you're getting with Skeletor, and you you get the feeling with him just saying that you're thinking to yourself, this isn't your father's Skeletor anymore. This is mm -hmm. Skeletor, not just looking, but thinking in a different way. And that's the that's the difference here. He is not just given a new set of robes. He has a whole new mentality, although it is Skeletor ultimately. He, he is thinking in different ways. And then he goes on to talk to Lynn that he has seen the... Var he, he, it's like Roy Batty in um, Blade Runner. I have seen the, the Gates of Orion, blah, blah, blah. And that gives you a glimpse into his character in a way that you wouldn't get in like a fight scene or him just say, giving some exposition. That is you giving his his literal take on things because everything now what he eternia is just it's not even insects it's gas to him he's yeah. seen whole civilizations come and go now and that line it tastes like cop and of course what does 
what are we familiar with tasting like copper blood mm-hmm. so it goes to life it tastes like life he's actually saying without saying it but to him it tastes like copper yeah. he's basically talking about life and time is life i think or uh, or, or or maybe it's just the star everything is life woven a test it's such a beautiful wine and to me this is the skeletal line for me in this in revelation as a whole you know as i watch this and um as you were saying with him just talking about, you know, entire civilizations, um, you know, being taken out by planets and, and suns, you know, being burned out. And he said there was all this madness and uh, anguish, which mm-hmm. he clearly relished here. And when I first, first watched this episode, I was like, wow, is this madness and anguish and civilizations that perish what prince adam sees too all this you know yeah that's what didn't line up for me okay well let me let me let me explain to what i saw and then you can maybe counter yeah so as we watch how evelyn sees the universe in later episodes i think people with the power see the universe in their own image um in a in a partial reflection of themselves Meaning, um, if you had the power and you always feared life, you would see fearful things or take them in a fearful way. You know, that one's perception is is that thing they call a motivated perception, as in one with power sees not exactly an accurate representation of what truly is you know people's perceptions are selective anyway people as we're you kind of were touching upon this before people stare at an image and they see two different things or sometimes people see different colors there's a famous um image on the internet i think it's this dress where people just see either like black or they see white and it's crazy and um so having the power um probably can be dangerous if it's held by weak-minded people or evil people, as we see here, and weak-minded, as we'll see with Evil Inn. And it, it's probably why being the sorceress and the champion of Grayskull requires the purest and best of hearts and minds. Yeah, because, because um, what I was going to say is I was waiting in that moment for the sorceress to change and do... Um, in the episode where the Borg were introduced in Star Trek Next Generation, um, there might be another one, but Q and Picard have this um, verbal duel. And Q is saying, like, oh, you know, the worst of humanity. Oh, humanity is this, that. And Picard counters him. And, and he uses a Shakespearean quote, which I don't quite remember. But he says, you know, how like a god, how like a blah, blah. And he talks about this is humanity. Yes, we've, we've got negative parts, but we've also got positive. And I was waiting for the sorceress to say, yes, but it is also beauty. It is also this. And she doesn't. But the final episode, you do get, and it's Teela talking to Lynn. Because Lynn has a similar thing as Skeletor. She sees only nihilism. She sees desolation. She sees there's no point. Skeletor here talks about, we want to see an architect, but at the end of the day, it's chaos. 
And Teela and that, and the sorceress, I imagine, they see, yes, that, but there is also beauty, there is structure, there is, there is that, there is not nihilism, and yet Lynn's actions later on, she wants to destroy because she doesn't see the universe as worth existing, whereas you can then take from that, well, the sorceress was wanting to save reality, because she very much did see the good in everything. Here, Skeletor is not seeing the good in everything because you'd see it when um, he kills the sorceress and Duncan's reaction to that, and he says, ugh, grief. He's a psychopath. He's a sociopath. He doesn't have the capacity. So maybe he might be seeing some things, but because he can't interpret, he's not capable of interpreting it. It's like he's seeing... A, um, instruction book and it's written in German. He doesn't know how to read German. So all he's going to see are the the pictures of how to put together this Ikea thing. And he'll go strictly by the pictures, but he's not seeing the written word. It's the mm. equivalent of that. So all he's seeing is, oh, there's no architect. It's that and the other. And I really wanted the sorceress to chime in. She doesn't. It's a shame, but it does eventually come back. And it's what you said. I think the power is neutral, and it's just amping up whatever is there, or in the case of Lynn, what she was conditioned to be like. Yeah, I think Skelegod says, you know, it's all about just unrivaled power. You know, everyone's mm. ins in insignificant. Because he is all about power. He only cares yeah. about power. Well, the, 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 the line important with him there is, you would have loved it, Lily, you know, meaning Lily, he yeah. loved it. He loved yes. what he saw. In the same way as later on, he says, oh, you have to be careful. It can be awfully addictive. But you get this feeling like for him, being addicted to this swirling cosmic vortex of nothingness, it titillates him. Yeah. And you got the feeling that with Lynn, she would have had a different take on it. She wouldn't. I mean, you do. You see her. She's horrified by it. Skeletor yeah. clearly is not horrified. Skeletor, it's like foreplay to Skeletor because that's what he gets off of. And I, that's why I love the live action version because you have Frank Langelli brought that Shakespearean quote into it. I must, oh, I must control or own everything, or I control nothing. And that's what you see here, Skeletor. Yeah. He's got everything, and yet he feels like he owns nothing because he still wants to kill He Man. It's point. It's just a means to end. Right, and in, in further episodes, I mean, we see. We're, we're going to see, and I, I'm going to save most of that for another retrospective, but we mm -hmm. see Evil Lynn, we see her childhood, you know, she's really damaged goods. And yeah. once she sees the universe, I, I equate it, I personally equate it to, she sees it as something dying and there's the carcass, okay? But the sorceress yeah. sees the grand design that when something dies, it feeds nature. And it's reborn, right? And that's with the phoenix and everything else. That 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 evil Lynn, based on her own experiences, only sees the death and the destruction and the horror, and and doesn't see the grander design. Because and of course, what did we find out on this episode? She's just had this revelation that Skeletor has been feeding off her yeah, like a parasite. Yeah. She has. She is herself the cadaver. That yep. a scavenging vulture has been silently feet without it being aware. So for her, she's seeing herself in the universe, maybe. Yeah. Whereas Skeletor is seeing, like, what is Skeletor? Skeletor feels empty. 
and he is yeah. saying there is no architect it's all emptiness he has got this insatiable appetite he yeah. is forever chasing the dragon and in some episodes in the old cartoon he was literally chasing the dragon but Skeletor is forever chasing the dragon because he can't ever attain what he wants because he doesn't know what he wants he's like the Joker in the Batman films I'm like a dog after a, a, a running after a car. I wouldn't know what to do if, if I had it, if I caught it. Skeletor mm. thinks he would know, but yeah. he doesn't. Evil then, she she gains access. She turns the key and to her, but she's just had this revelation. She is this gutted carcass because Skeletor has taken all that. You used me. And he says, yeah, of course I used you. He, he's all but saying, bitch. Of course, of course I did it. What the hell did you think I was? I'm skeletal. What the? F <laughs> all right. Well, we'll get there in one second. So we're jumping ahead. So, but uh, all right. So let me backtrack us a little bit and say um, hmm. as, that Skeletal God approaches the sorceress with her force field um, and yes. that she's shielded within um, and Skeletal God is sliding the power sword against it and goes, walks around it and mocks her. And it's a great callback to the 1987 live action Masters of the Universe yeah. theatrical film where Skeletor, played by Frank Lagella, you know, does the same thing with the sorceress played yeah, by this... um, actress Christina Pickles. Yeah. It's the sort of torchlight. Uh, it's this tube of light that's around her. Yeah. Mm hmm. And like you were even suggesting before, and like and she's growing old in that one as well. Yeah, and yeah, here, you've got a similar thing because the the magic has gone here, mm -hmm. and she's not definitely at full strength. And um, she had let the power come to Eternia before herself, mm. and um, and Mark Hamill, he's really chewing the scenery here with this dialogue, <laughs> and um, and actually, it doesn't surprise me that Mark was. Um, nominated for a children's and family uh emmy uh for his performance um and he deserved to win he didn't win but he was nominated but uh so skelgod goes on this master of the monologue <laughs> and uh the the bleeding adam notices uh movements in the shadows and he cracks a smile and uh tila looking at him like she could read his mind looks frightened and quietly shakes her head no you know, don't do whatever you're going to do. But Prince Adam doesn't listen to her and gets up. And just when Ske Skelegon... Without any trouble, even though he's been penetrated from the rear, he's, he's getting up. It's not... <laughs> well, no, he's holding his stomach. And if you remember... Yeah. But he's... Pile, and he, yeah. He, he... No, I think he did have trouble. If you watch it again, he was kind of hunched over and pushing himself up. And he stood up. Um, but... Um, well, Tila doesn't want him to do it, but Prince Adam, he doesn't listen to her. And just when uh, Skelegod declares that all of Eternia will um, remember this historic moment when Skeletor finally kills He-Man, Adam defiantly replies, I am not He-Man. And uh, mm -hmm. Skeletor turns to him with that low guttural growl, you know, what did you say? And Adam, you know, dripping blood from his waist um, into a pool of blood in the floor, uh, struggling to stand, shouts, you know, I am Adam, Prince of Eternia and Defender. But before he could get another word out, Skelgod slams him to the ground. But Adam now spits up blood uh, from his mouth, heroically stands up again. And how can anyone not discover like a new level of respect for Adam for 
his inner strength and uh, courage now. Um, Adam stands up again and makes it, uh, you know, declares and defender the secrets of Castle Grayskull. And then he says, and this is my fearless friend, yeah. Cringer. <laughs> this is Cringer's moment. Is yep. Yep. Because he's not Battle Cat. This is cr and you know because you're so familiar with Cringer, Cringer would have had to have overcome so many fears to do this. Um, mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. think I think there was an earlier episode where, where Cringer even says, Oh, I'm even scared of butterflies, or, or maybe he did it in the original one. But that is Cringer, and Cringer leaps out at Evil Lynn. He's full you know, I am lolcat, hear me roar. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a sign of cringer we have never, and he's doing this because he has, you know, cringer that has to do it because cringer is their one saving grace. Yep. He's the only one who can. And he, yes. he, he pounces on Evelyn, he bites her wand, he chucks it, breaking those magical bonds that restrained uh, Andra, Tila, and Duncan. And as Skelegod yells, no, you know, Duncan blasts him. And why has this happened? It's because everyone underestimates Cringer. Mm -hmm. That's why he wasn't bound up. They let him run off. And here's Cringer saying, uh-uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, he, uh, Duncan tells Tila to run, and he holds Skelegod off. And uh, Duncan does a pretty good job holding uh Skell got off too you know with lasers with uh smoke missiles um and um wasn't there i don't know uh, gigantic, sword as well. yes that gigantic badass sword yeah as uh cringer holds um evil in at bay and andre does the same thing uh with beastman and it's not until Skelegod grabs Duncan's uh, large sword with his mighty grip and snaps it like a twig mm. is when Tila starts helping Adam hustle for the exit. But Skelegod uses his power to close the gate and mocks the heroes that their little playtime is over. And uh, with that, Skelegod commands the wand back into Evelyn's hand and the whip back into Beastman's hand. And Skelgard I mean, tells up here, um, Man at Arms is basically, they've pretty much fleshed him out. He is like the Eternian version of Batman. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this version, it's like Batman versus evil Superman. And this mm. one fight scene, that's what you're getting here. Because he, he's just all gadgets and everything. It's great. It is great. He is like the old Batman now. You know, and uh, yeah, he's yeah. grizzled, he's experienced. He, that's mm -hmm. what he, I really appreciate that in this. He, I think the actor said this was written for an older character, it's someone who's been there, done that, and you definitely get that with Duncan. And he has his own theme, and I love the theme that they play every time he's battling, it's just wonderful, it just makes me smile. And um, so Skell uh, God says there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. And the power of Grayskull has abandoned them. And at this point, sorcerers had enough. So transforming into en energy, the sorceress vacates the force field and gets between the heroes and the villains and manifests back into humanoid form. And she casts a spell that knocks out cold both Beastman and Evil Lynn, but has little impact on Skelgod. And Skelgod tells the sorceress that she doesn't have enough power 
or magic left to engage him, but she replies, I may not be at full strength, Skeletor, but you're only playing a god, and you forget what you truly are. And of course, Skeletor can't help himself but biting here and says, what is that, sorceress? And she replies, you're nothing but bones. And suddenly the sorceress unleashes a death ray. It looks like a gigantic death ray upon Skelegod, a blast that he's only able to counter with the power sword, using it to split the magical beam into two. And it still pushes him back, though, and uh, Skelegod has to dig in with his feet and advance slowly to get to the sorceress step by step, grunting, but he is advancing. And when the sorceress realizes her death ray won't be enough to stop the evil demon, she pulls one hand back uh, towards Tila, Andra, and Adam and starts casting a spell to send them far away to essentially make them disappear. She chants Sor, uh, Zora Faseca Shukmota. Zora Faseca Tell me if you start disappearing, Eric. <laughs> Shook Mota. And uh, you did say you were going to start speaking that language, and here we are. She did it with more emphasis. So, uh, the prophecy exactly. has come true. <laughs> well, and here our heroes begin to disappear, and so is Duncan. And this is the foreshadowing you were talking about, Eric. So mm. is Duncan disappearing until Evil Lynn puts a hand on him. And magically detaches him from that group spell of disappearance and says, not so fast, man in arms, which foreshadows what Evelyn does to Orko in a helpful way in the final episode of Masters of the Universe Revelation when the white Orko, Orko the White, is going to go back to... Yeah, like Gandalf the White. Yeah, Yeah. like Gandalf the White, yeah. Yeah. and uh, but uh, she says, you know, not so fast. So again, it's another nice foreshadowing um, in this episode to the final. But um, mm. but I digress. The sorceress collapses, and Skelgod runs for the heroes. But Prince Adam, Andra, Cringer, Cringer, and Tila disappear just in time, just barely avoiding his grasp. I was waiting for them to give him a curses, and they didn't do it. (laughs) Well, instead, uh, Skelegard totally... He does a Kylo Ren. He starts (laughs) banging the floor with the power sword. He starts swinging his sword in every direction, (laughs) cursing, making grunts, and then he finally composes himself, you know, and he calls the sorceress a tiresome woman that it's time for some new blood then skewers the sorceress in the chest with the power sword causing duncan to scream out legitimately one of the most powerful no's i've ever heard in film or television i mean this wasn't the darth vader no you know we heard at the end of the star wars revenge of the sith movie Um, No, this what actor Liam Cunningham delivers here uh, is just jam packed with emotion and feels so painful and so genuine that it it cuts to my core. I mean, right here. And uh, once again, how marvelous is it that a cartoon can make me feel that way? You know, 
So Man at Arms takes off his helmet and forearm blaster and rushes to the sorcerer's side as uh, Evil Lynn looks shocked that Skelegod gave her this mortal wound. Duncan cries, asking, why? Why did you do that, my love? But Sorceress doesn't answer the question, just puts her hand on Duncan's face tenderly, like we saw in the flashback, and say, my Duncan, and wipes his tear away. And now, here you have Lynn looking on quite shocked yes and yes. I, I think what my when i first watched this my my feeling was she knows skeletal she should why is this surprising to her she knows he's the kind of guy who does this but upon re-watching it i think what was the real gist of it is probably that she's feeling well the sorceress is too valuable to be killed at this point skeletal needs the sorceress and she's reacting not oh my god he's killed someone i think her look of shock is more to do with well if he's killed the sorceress everyone is expendable including me yeah. i think that's that's part of what's driving that reaction it's not just oh he's killed someone because he's skeletal i think she's going everyone now is a pawn in ways that she probably wouldn't have thought of before because there, there was that grouping together out of necessity yeah. thing and now of course skeletor is empowered so she's thinking yeah well, am i a loose end that's interesting i actually saw it a different way but that could be right i saw it as just she's a different person now after the first part that of could be it yeah because she has had this journey of her own yeah there was so many years after skeletor's death to begin with and that if you remember the alliance started with the sorceress and evil lynn you know mm -hmm. where where she had tila go on these quests and lead her to castle grayskull and they found you know tila found out that the sorceress and evil lynn were now working together they had mm -hmm. similar mutual interest and perhaps that you know she started changing as a person and at least that was my interpretation that this is not the same evil lynn that was there when skeletor died so mm -hmm. well so next we satellite to tila where she opens her eyes and comes to because this teleportation spell seemingly rendered her briefly unconscious and she realizes she's at the palace now and Cringer rushes to her side desperately and pleads with Tila that she has to help Prince Adam. And she runs over to Adam and uh, Andre and Cringer uh, join her and they find Adam still unconscious and panicked. She says we have to stop the bleeding and she opens Prince Adam's clothes. But the stabbing that Adam took looks much, much worse than expected. So much so that her hands begin to shake. But Tila closes her eyes and asks Sora to help her. And suddenly two hands in astral forms grabs Tila's hands and stops them from shaking. And it's the form of the sorceress, and only Tila can see her. And the sorceress guides Tila's hands over Adam's wounds. And the next thing we know, Tila's blessing that she received on her forehead as a baby appears. Yeah. And Tila magically heals Adam's wounds um, as good as new. 
And then the astral sorceress dissolves into these like magical sparkles and floats into the sky. She she does a Yoda, basically. Yeah. And we hear her voice say, perhaps just to herself, I love you, little bird. And then, and then we cut back to the gut punch of all gut punches, at least to me. And we see Sorceress's hand still on Duncan's face as it slides off and falls to the ground. And her body begins to disintegrate into particles into the air as Duncan holds the disappearing sorceress in his arms and he yells, he screeches, he begs, no, my love, don't leave me. And then he yells out such a painful shriek delivered amazingly by Liam and matched by the artists that captured this like cry of devastation and loss with such a unbelievably painful look drawn upon Duncan's face and damn this cartoon. I, I, I think it's the most gut wrenching moment for me of the entire series. And I almost want to like challenge anyone, anyone I say uh, not to tear up during this amazing scene. All I can say is wow. And bravo to everybody involved. And it wouldn't have had that emotional impact if he had not seen the flashback at the start of the episode. Yes. Yeah. Because that, that really fills us in into they had that bond. And it was it was a meaningful one. It wasn't just, you know, they're going out on dates or whatever. They they had a legitimate <laughs> like they were in love. There was mm-hmm. that feeling. And of course, you know, he he's he is the mature guy. They both are mature, but he you get that more with man at arms. Um, and um, it could have easily gone two ways at this point. If a character suffers that kind of loss, here it's that that no took the energy out of him. But it could have easily been he's got nothing else left to lose. Yeah. And he could have become rage personified. They didn't go that way. And I That's think the by usual doing, way they go. Don't yeah, they? by yeah. by doing that, I think that um, that played more into Duncan's character because he is more level. Even at moments like that, he he has got that not nobility, but you know he he understands. He's not a teenager. He's not going to yeah. fly off the handle. He is. He knows certain things aren't going to change. Mm. What he's upset about. So I've lost. All I can do is be led off. Mm. And um, Beastman's like, how grumpy he looked behind him. But um, yeah, it's it, it could have gone easily gone either way. But uh, here it was, he has the devastation and that's it. He has no more left to give. And I think that where I accidentally interrupted you with is just the less traveled choice. And I'm glad they took it here mm-hmm. because so many times in movies and television shows, it's always the rage. Yeah. It's always the adrenaline filled. I'm going to kill you now. And um, which in fairness, they, you know, if he'd have done that, Skeletor's already killed the sorceress. He's not going to care about killing, running Duncan through and Duncan doesn't have any way to, 
take on Skeletor. He could have maybe killed uh, Lin, but then, you know, he can't, the True. door's not open. What would he have done? Escape but it's not about even rational thought. It's like seeing no, red. But, that, but that would have been the end of that character's journey, which is, is my point. Yeah. They wouldn't have been able to do anything with him unless Teela teleported him from a distance and she's not that powerful yet. No. So they they kind of had to do it this way, but I think the way they did it, it it felt like it paid respect to a loss that personal and devastating. It mm. felt like it was a human reaction. In the same way that even though it's, it got um, mocked a lot in you know the, the third party critics, the way that Teela reacted after Adam died, that felt like a human reaction. People yes. don't think things through. They make decisions and maybe Teela would have woken up like a week later and gone, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But she'd have stayed the course because this is the road I'm on now. And this felt like another one. It was felt like a very human reaction. This didn't feel like a cartoon character. This felt like a man of mature years reacting like he's just been hollowed out to the core. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it reminded to... us that, that he is not a, even though he's depicted like a superhero, he is not a superhero. That's the difference between him and Roboto, who also had a sacrifice that did a great service to his character. He has emotions. He is not He-Man. He is another, he, he's just a very good engineer. He's a soldier, but he is just a normal, he is a human like anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. And you were talking about Tila, you know, when people forget about all the different stages of grief, you know, and yes. one of them, a big one is anger, you know, yeah. and denial. Denial. Yeah. And, and look, it's just, um, you know, I'd mentioned this in the other retrospective just real quick. Um, um, you know, there's, um, it, it's the same thing that happens in human condition when you find out secrets about someone that you love that you can't act upon or you can't confront them. You know, if you go through someone's papers after someone died and you found out they're cheating on you or they had a secret um, child, love child or a spouse or, you know, who knows what, or, yeah, you know, you live in a secret life and you, you can't even confront them about it. Uh, how angry you are or how yes. betrayed you feel, you know? And, and it needs an outlet. So sometimes people get hurt who don't deserve it. And yeah. it's just that's that's the nearest way it can be channeled. Sure. Which, sure. again, comes to the heart of the show because the show is it's about power, but not just because characters like Skeletor think, well, what can it do for them? But it's about how the power changes you and how you serve the power. Yeah. And that goes straight back to the beginning of the episode where the sorceress, you know, she eventually says to Tila, you know, I, I did this because it was in service to Zor and it's the highest honor you can do. And it's not me taking me away from you. It's me putting something incredibly good into the world through me. And here you have, you know, the opposite to that. It's Duncan's feeling something has been incredibly good and best probably he regards the sorceress as the best of them all yeah. that's been taken away from him through skeletor who has now become as close to a god as you can but like the sorceress said he's just playing at a god he is not a god he's just off on a power trip yeah that's his mask 
And this takes us back to where you touched upon before. Um, I, I love how evil Lynn looks horrified by all this, but Skelligod mm. was just like what you said before. Ew. Grief. Grief. <laughs> So, he doesn't you'd expect this is interesting because a lot of villains you would expect him to kind of take sadistic joy mm. and he doesn't he just regards it as <laughs> in the same way that there's another great scene in the live action one where you know they have the they have the ability to lay waste to the town or something and say, what should we do? And he says, no, let's, we've got what we came here. And he's, he's said, what, what should we do with the, you know, the prisoners, Courtney Cox and all that? He says, oh, let them rot. Let mm. them rot. Because he regards Earth as a, a wasteland. Because <laughs> Earth has got nothing to offer him. So just let them rot. And it's that kind of, uh grief it's yeah. uh, don't even it feels like he's being contaminated with it in his presence mm. it's a it's not a typical reaction but he is the kind of reaction you would get with a, a sociopath psychopath yeah and it's bringing that forward again he doesn't know what to do with it it's it's an it's emotional waste why are you wasting your time doing grief why aren't you angry why aren't you uh, you're not worth it. And again, later on, he comes to visit Duncan in the dungeon, and you know, I, we are great warriors. We should be fighting in battle and meeting our end that way. He doesn't understand why someone's reacting that way. It's pathetic, you know, yeah. at least to him. So, per Skeletor's orders, Beastman uh, locks Man at Arms down in the dungeon, and Skelgod tells Evelyn that. Um, Men and women are born solely to die, and he sees the universe as one giant abattoir, which uh, means that was a great line. Slaughterhouse, it is. It's abattoir. It is. What is it? Abattoir of a universe, or yeah, it's it's teeming with the dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, gods, however, he says, will live forever. So Skelgod points the sword at Evelyn and turns her into what the powerhouse animation studio refers to as Skella Sorceress. <laughs> wow. Yep. <laughs> and oh, uh, Skella God crowns her as the new Sorceress of Grayskull. And um, personally, I am really dazzled by uh, Evelyn's uh, new bat motif design. And uh, apparently as it's been She's sexed up, isn't she, in this version? Well, yeah, and it, it's like um, the, around the legs and stuff. It's a lot more in the um, I think it was in the art book and in some interviews. But it's it's an outfit that represents how Lynn is perceived through Skeletor's eyes. Yeah, that's a good point. It's partially a mere object to please him, to serve him, to give him pleasure, including sexual pleasure, right? But it's basically yeah, <laughs> it's basically a um. Uh, a manifestation of Skeletor's dark desires. Mm. So, and it's really a well-crafted outfit considering what it represents, I think yeah. at least. So it would have been neat to see her to turn into a bat though. Um, yeah. I was, ex I was expecting that. It doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah. So Skelgod goes on and to tell us. Well, the, the other way is um, playing into the sexual debate, it, the, the bat head, it's got fangs on. 
So mm. it's giving her a, a a vampiric look as well. Yeah. There's that vampire aesthetic as well. Even though it's not, it goes in with her pale skin. She she's all but got fangs herself, but the headdress has got fangs on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So uh, Skelgod goes on to tell. Um, Sorceress Lynn, that before he was atomized by the orb, he was quickly he quickly cast his soul in Lin's wand for safekeeping. And from there he fed on her like a tick, slowly regrowing his body from hers, and then whispered the whims and wishes that brought her here to this moment. And as you were saying before, you know, Lynn looked um violated. And says, you used me. Mm-hmm. Um, and Skell God says, of course I used you, you know, and I paid you back with some of my power. Which, let's be fair, he's got a point. <laughs> he has he has enhanced her through it. He hasn't gone, I've I've you I've I've just repaid my debt to you. You just mm-hmm. didn't realize I'd I owed you one. But he's doing it to use her. Ultimately, she is still a tool. She just become a world class tool. Not, you know, the, <laughs> not the other way, but she's become the ultimate tool because he he will now use her in yeah. the ultimate way. She will grant him. You know, she uses her in this instance to um, scry for the whereabouts of enemies, but she can do her magic would have gone through the stratosphere in this form Mm. yeah so her first task is as the new sorceress is to uh, find out where the old sorceress sent adam and his friends oh no before that he used her the good news that she's just become shackled She's tethered to the castle. That's right. He explains to her that this... uh, He has that wonderful thing from the 80s cartoon where he addressed her as, my dear. And he says, you have... Yeah, this castle... my dear. Yeah. This castle comes with a crooked curse, right? He's all but telling her she's a dog and she's got a leash. Yes. Essentially. But he's basically saying all sorceresses do. She's basically saying, he's basically saying she's bound there forevermore. But, um, but, but he does say, I will go bring the universe to you. Yeah, they have that, um, the, uh, the apex, I forget what it's called, the celestial apex, those circles that come from the, yeah. the, the roof of Castle Grayskull or the, the ceiling the of Castle Orary. Yeah. Yeah. And she can use that to look through the entire universe, which we find out in future episodes. But right now, he just wants her to find the heroes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and imagine how insulting that is, though. I give you the, the power to view everything. I just find me where Teela's gone. <laughs> <laughs> or, or really, He Man, Adam. It's all about Adam. Yeah, you know? just find me where that the that's the one thing I you had one job. <laughs> <laughs> So we uh, we cut back to the uh, palace grounds where Tila is still staring at her hands, mystified. You know, how did she magically able to heal Adam? But before she could give it any more thought, Fisto and Clampchamp run to them and accuse Tila and Andra of being thieves trying to loot the palace. 
But before they come to blows, Cringer runs in and says, are you too blind? You know, that's Tila. And I guess it's the power of a shorter haircut, I guess, prevents yeah. you from recognizing Cringer, the old Cringer, the voice of reason. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the thing about Tila's haircut, like it's it's kind of cool, but it was too cyberpunk 2077 for me. It, it felt a little too cyberpunk for me. But I mean, I, 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 the shaven part, it, it felt like it was more of a cyberpunk thing than a, an Eternian thing. But um, yeah, I mean, she's clearly got a very different look in this. So it's understandable why they wouldn't have recognized her. She looks very different. I guess so. I, and I guess it's been something like seven or eight years as well. Yeah. Too, so, but, um, but these two are still, even though when they recognize Tila now, they're still aggressive towards Andra until a voice tells them that Andra is a friend. And that voice is Prince Adam. And, uh, after getting over the shock that Adam is alive, clamp champ says that the King and queen is going to be elated with, uh, prince adam's return but not at the moment because uh clamp champ just sent king randor and queen marlena off in the talon fighter apparently they saw what was happening in the sky above castle grayskull so the king and queen decreed an evacuation of eternos to all rendezvous uh, rendezvous at uh point dread and fisto asks adam is it true that skeletor has returned and Adam stares out across the clouds and says, ask him yourself. And then suddenly a gigantic uh, cloud of purple smoke appears in the sky. And what feels like another um, callback to the 1987 uh, theatrical Yeah, I was going to say that with the hologram. In yeah. Turn, yeah, yeah. You have this big projection of Skelegod uh, in the sky. And... Um, Clamp Champ says, you know, he's back all right. And then Fisto says, I sure, is... <laughs> yeah, sure okay. like the fist him. Yeah. Go ahead. This is, this is that uh, like Alien Covenant, I'll do the fingering. This is that line for Master of the Universe Revelation. I sure like to fist it. Like, there's no other way to interpret it. But I mean, imagine how awful a fate that would be from Fisto, of all people. Well, um, on the filmation <laughs> side of things, he means punch. But uh, look, that yeah. all right, all right. But Let's it's stop. Kevin Smith. You know, it was at the. It was in the back of his mind. All right. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, of course. Of course. <laughs> Look, that line turned out to be pretty controversial. But it was delivered great. It was delivered in the way you could, you believe the character. It was meant. So it was. It, there's nothing. I yeah. I can't fault the delivery. Delivery was great. Well, this is my perspective. It was obvious uh, double entendre, right? And um, some fans did get offended with it, and I have nothing but respect towards them and their feelings. But why I ultimately love this is being a fan of Masters of the Universe since uh, the early 80s, I've come across more jokes than I can count in every corner of the internet. Gags, jokes, memes that were built around Fisto and his fists yes. and his name. So this joke to me is kind of meta, you know? Yeah, it's, it's kinda... just acknowledging it, right? 
Yeah. I mean, I mean do, you, do you know what Merman's original name was? Oh, see that, there. <laughs> yeah, they had to change it. They admitted that most of the names for these characters were thought up. And he's, the guy said, it's on um, The Toys That Made Us. That It was a great Netflix show. Yes. And he says, it, well, there might have been a few beverages involved. And he's basically saying they were all just drunk and they thought up random names on there. It's a lot of them were double entendres and they had to um change, change them. them. So, yeah. yeah. Um but I love it. You know, it's self-aware yeah. and, and so yeah exactly it's and it's Kevin fine. Smith incorporated one of the biggest consistent bad jokes told in Motu fandom and inserted yeah. it into actual canon. So like if he's gonna say it any time is this not the most appropriate time for a giant skeleton? Say, oh, <laughs> duck you. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the other one, that what surprised me didn't get as much in the way of objections was there's, I forget which episode it is, but Evil Lynn literally goes, bollocks. Yeah. And I thought that would be the more controversial because that isn't quite in line with, the characterizations we used to, although again later on, obviously, sex with Skeletor. But like when she says bollocks, that was the first hint. This is not aimed at kids. It is kids, yes, but it's it's aimed for the the fans who grew up with it, and we're all other ages now. Yeah. So um, when it's saying that line, I mean, I I didn't go, uh, I didn't cringe. I laughed. I laughed in a good-natured way, and that's how it should come across. You go, you just go, oh, that's, yeah, okay, Fisto. That's Fisto's line right there. So I didn't mind it. I didn't mind it. Oh, good. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. So, but um, it is the line everyone quotes. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> There's no getting away from that. And, I, and I'm sorry for everyone who didn't like it, but I got a kick out of it. So Yeah, we both did. So uh, Skelligod addresses what he calls the pathetic people of Eternia, and he tells them he finally found a purpose for their utterly useless lives as an army of the dead. And Skelligod uh, then unleashes a purple mist over the city, turning its citizens into horrific, quote-unquote, skeletized citizens. Demonic entities. I mean, what he has done here... He's unleashed a magical weapon of mass destruction. Yes, this is the kind of thing, like in um, like Dungeons and Dragons type shows, that the villain always kind of threatens to do, and you only see it in miniscule. This is Skeletor going "f you, Eternia," and he's doing it. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things I meant where sometimes you you get the thing: is that what they're going to do? Yeah, it goes there. It literally turns all of those citizens into these skull-headed monstrosities. And it's not like there's a reset. It never gets reset. That's their fate. Yeah, They've been turned into or they've been replaced. It's not quite clear. I think he talks about... Um, um, when Fisto and that, they change into... They talk about they'd already died... But even so, he has killed, he has, that is an act of genocide. And yeah. we've seen it in a Netflix cartoon about He-Man. 
this was one of those moments where this show got dark. This is a really, it is quite horrifying. I mean, the change is quite horrifying. But the ramifications of that, you think, this is, this is something only a psychopath would do. This is a psychopath with wizard, with wizard. And you think to yourself, well, what was stopping him before? But, of course, now he is amped up. This is what he would have done if he had this kind of power to channel before. This is what Skeletor does with it. And it's it's something that um, he's not doing it just for show. It's it's a means to an end. It's like that great quote in Blade Two: "Cancer with a purpose." He's saying you're an army of the undead, and he's laughing. But they're now his army. Didn't have an army before. They are now his army, and he is using them against the good guys. And because they look identical to the figures you had in that first episode. You have to wonder, were they normal people that he transformed? Yeah, yeah, yeah good point. Were, is that other people whose fates were... I mean, that's, it's quite dark stuff that happened just with that simple act, but um, it's beautifully Skeletor. You can't yeah. fool it. You say, what would Skeletor do? This is what Skeletor would do. And he cackles as he watches yeah, it happen. This is a yeah. magical version of a nuke, and he's used it. Yeah. Yep. No regrets. And then uh, Skelegod spots Adam and compliments him at being so resilient um, and then quips, you know, let me help you with that <laughs> as he... Uh, as he sends a gust of purple mist after him and uh, Clamp Champ yells, move, you know, and Andra sees the purple mist uh, disintegrates uh, trees or leaves on a tr on nearby trees. It and decays while everything, doesn't it, yep. basically? Yep. And while running warns everyone that the mist is corrosive and they can't let it touch them. And Adam jumps to avoid the mist and almost gets overcome by it. But Clamp Champ saves him just in time, but gets singed by the mist um, on the foot. And then the mist blocks Clamp Champ in Adam's path, but Fisto punches a hole through it, providing an exit path, but gets his arm singed in the process. So the heroes get inside the palace and shut the doors just in time. But the mist has already done its damage to Fisto and Clamchamp as an infection begins to spread across their bodies as they scream in pain. And it's an, get... an analogy for, you know, zombie bites infect people. It's a very yeah. similar kind of Day of the Dead thing, but mm -hmm. hyped up on crack. <laughs> and we get this cool, uh, horrific transformation of Fisto yeah. and Clamchamp into these army of dead creatures. This um, is something I love about that. Like earlier on in these earlier episodes, you had the good guys and bad guys. You had lines being blurred. I love when good guys have to be bad guys and bad guys have to be good guys. The one line I remember from the old original show, and it's all it stuck with me to this day. There's this, I forget why, but Skeletor and E-Man, they're like they got a, a truce because I think Snake Mountain's falling apart. And uh, I think He-Man says to Skeletor, aren't you always tired of always being evil? And Skeletor does this great retort, aren't you tired of always being good? And you, yes. 
it makes you think, yeah, he would think of it that way. And it why don't get tired with being good. And here you have that literal these champions being turned literally into evil. And it mirrors because what has Skeletor done? When I was a kid, I always used to wonder what happened with, was Skull originally Skeletor's house or something? Because it looked like a giant skull. What has he done to Skull? He has corrupted, he has violated Skull, killed the sorceress, put evil Lynn on the throne as an evil, corrupted version of the sorceress, made himself the corrupted, evil version of He-Man. He's corrupted and violated the most sacred area of Eternia. Now he has corrupted and violated the Eternians themselves. Now he is corrupting and violating from afar these two champions who look so physically imposing that if he, even if He-Man was there, you could think they might stand a chance of taking down He-Man because they're that built, right? Yeah. Um, and now they get turned unquestionably evil there is no moment where you know they say i know i can believe in you it doesn't work it doesn't work on them yeah. this is that if they've irreversibly changed and now the heroes are forced to deal with these are your friends but they're now super powered versions of what was out there chasing you down hmm. and you know what was interesting is when they were Actually, uh, real quick, to go back, the, the quotes you were talking about from the Filmation episode, uh, aren't you tired of being good? Aren't you tired of being evil? Um, yeah. uh, the episode is Evil Seed, for anyone listening who wants to check that out. It's my favorite episode. Back to this. It was interesting that happened here, that viewers got an interesting, for like three seconds, a POV shot through the eyes of yes. Skeletized Clamp Champ looking at yeah. the heroes where the vision was purple hue and it had like a circular focus and it's like robocop it highlighted adam like terminator like, vision that was the thing you know we've seen this monstrous point of view a hundred hundreds of times before in horror movies like a werewolf's point of view or a creature's point of view or an alien three like you know yeah but but when he right when skeletized clamp champ locates the main target which is prince adam it highlights his silhouette with this like green sizzling green that you're right is almost like a terminator scanning objects um or like a hud display and it left me wondering is this army of the dead mist something similar to you know not just a virus but like a techno virus you know because i don't recall the hero clamp champ ever having a bionic eye Actually, I don't think this this character. No, I, th I think it's just magically transformed them because I mean it, these are magical powers. Skeletor is he is just yeah. transforming their essence. He is snapping his fingers. It's changing. It's like a vamp. They've been bitten by a vampire. They are just transforming. I don't think it's a bionic thing, but it, it looks cybernetic when you get that highlight thing. But it's, yeah, um, I think it's just them being. Don't go after this target. It's Skeletor because oh, he's it's... controlling them. He, yeah. He's saying, "Go after that guy." Okay, okay. Maybe I think it's... it's just the show, but you're you're right. It it's a little unfortunate because it does look cybernetic when they do it. Yeah, right. But I could I could go with that. That it's Skeletor like 
actually seeing through him, right? Manipulating, like go after that guy, putting an yeah. arrow on him. Yeah. He's just giving them a nudge, go after that one. Don't waste your time on the others. That's your primary target. No, no. It's like, so, how, you, how would you convey it to a child? You'd you'd color something in a brighter color. That's what, sure. like with a cat, you dangle some keys and the cat goes, what, what? Because it's going after the shiny thing, making <laughs> Adam shiny. Yeah, because it, it's yeah. appealing to that bestial. Because they are just bestial things now. They're just growling. They're predatory. Now that works for me. So uh, fighty fight ensues, and uh, during the battle, Tila attempts to reach Clamp Champ by saying, "Ranius, you know it's me. Snap out of it." But Adam tells Tila it's no use. Whatever is left of our friends is long gone. So the fighty fight continues, and Tila and Andra knock both. Skeletized Fisto and Clam Champ together, and Andra throws a grenade towards Tila. It actually looks like a um, canister, maybe filled with something to the equivalent of napalm or something to that effect. But Tila knocks the canister with her bow staff towards Clam Champ, and Clam Champ, Skeletized Clam Champ, catches it and looks oddly at it for a moment while. Andra aims her gauntlet gun at the canister and says, I'm sorry, and fires at it. And then there's this huge fireball explosion that engulfs Fisto and Clamp Champ, killing them and pissing a lot of Fisto fans off, to be honest with you, in fandom. But but uh, I digress. Um, when I say oh, kill God. them, I mean kill them, because what's left is burnt to the crisp yeah. cor corpses. Because how easy would it have been to have them not run to, I think it's the throne room or something like that. How easy would it have been for them just to run down, like they got to go down to the basement and maybe Teela or Adam sees like it's one of these magical artifacts that's in the vault and they go, no, use this. And they throw it and it, it would have exploded this sort of magical dust and it would have reversed their condition. Mm. It would have been so easy. And this is showing, again, there's consequences. There's no reset for killing the sorceress. That's it. The yeah. sorceress has been killed at the hand of Skeletor. Now, there has been for Adam. I mean, that's that's hand-wavy because it's, it's the He-Man show. We all know it's that. He's got to come back. If it wasn't Adam, it would have been like, you know, I... We found you, little orphan. We have to bless you with the power of He-Man. It would have been something like that. But that would have felt like a cop-out. Right. So Adam's brought back, but they have to go on a quest. They had to literally face their fears. It felt like a gauntlet to go through literally heaven and hell to bring him back, which mm -hmm. goes back into mythology about going through the the land of the dead, you know, paying the ferryman. Um but everyone, like, that is their one get-out-of-jail-free card, metaphorically. Yeah. Everyone else, I was really surprised. I thought it was going to be um, the dust would clear and it would be like nothing would be there. So there's, well, maybe they'll return. Maybe they were sent somewhere else. You don't know. But you actually see their skeletal remains that's the kicker here uh, no, it's, then, like, it's like it's like uh luke skywalker's aunt and uncle in star wars yeah Hello, if you remember yeah 
and and just to just to you know rip any possible hope when Skeletor comes back, he says, you know, I've got their souls. Yeah. And he literally shows you their souls. He doesn't destroy them, which I would have had this issue because you can't destroy a soul. But he said, I've sent them to Subternia. And that's it for Fisto and Clamp Champ. But there are consequences. It's like with Mossman. But there are consequences. There are ramifications. Um, okay, with Orko, again, he comes back. But for a long while there, you are thinking, yeah, Orko's gone to the land of the damned and that's it and i mean yeah. he even says he actually did die he's been brought back in another form like gandalf so right but yeah this was one of those moments you thought oh they they've taken a chance that's it these characters aren't coming back and it makes you feel even more for when other characters like andra she was not a famous character she could have been killed off at any moment there wouldn't have been much in the way of ramifications for the continuity if Andra had died. Right. But she's ultimately safe, but it makes you feel any, nobody's safe here. Nobody's safe. Well, don't worry, Eric, they're going to heaven or are they? Or are <laughs> Just, they? Yeah. So Tila kneels besides the, beside the remains and says, I'm sorry, old friends, you deserved better deaths. And uh, Adam kneels besides her to console her and says, their souls were honest and true. But if I know anything about the afterlife, both Fisto and Clampchamp are already in Praternia. But just then, there's some bangs at the door, and in the palace, uh, the doors swing open to reveal Skelegod and an army of Skeletai citizens. And Skelegod reveals something really profound. He says... Um, Fisto and Clampchamp would be in Praternia if he didn't snatch their souls first and hold them in the palm of his hands. And Skelegod reveals that with the with that power sword, you know, Adam's power sword, he was imbued with this ability that there's so much more available to He-Man. He could not only control life or death, but control the afterlife as well. Yeah. You said you and, could have ripped my soul from my body and you chose not to. Yeah, he reveals that. he's now saying I have the power over life and death itself. And Wow. Yeah, he said he said that Adam abused the power, right? That yeah. he never used it to his full potential, that he only need, he used it to police, quote unquote, police Skeletor. But all, all this time, he man could have just ripped Skeletor's soul out of yeah. his body and be done with it, just like Skelegod did with Fisto and Clamchamp. And and wow, right? I mean, this speaks so much, so much to the goodness of adam i mean what a person he is yeah. to be That's able the difference between them yeah to be able to defy um in all intents and purpose a force something so strong like gravity to defy yeah. the overpowering human nature where i don't know where absolute power corrupts absolutely yes yes um but not adam right yeah. and um I'll say it again. I was never a big fan of Adam until this show. You know, Masters yeah. of the Universe Revelation made me a huge, huge fan yeah. of him. It's like with me and with um, Anakin Skywalker, 
in the live action prequels, it never ma matched up to the Alec McGuinness, um, Alec Guinness original quote of what Anakin was meant to be. And it took the CGI cartoon show, The Clone Wars, to really, that was Anakin. The live action Anakin was not how Anakin should have been. This show really brought Adam to the fore. But it, again, it was because he doesn't, they didn't take the cheap way out of giving you He-Man. Mm -hmm. They gave you Adam, and the show played around with what makes Adam Adam, because he he's the same as he he man. He's that is he man. He's just as I said earlier, he's putting on a different mask basically. Um, but Duncan says it great later on. He says, "Well, he gave back the power. That's why we followed him because mm -hmm. he can be trusted." and what Skeletor says here it is it's great turns of phrase. You just policed me. And from his point of view, you are seeing this. From our point of view, it's weird, but it totally makes sense. You you abuse the power because you were not selfish. <laughs> it takes a certain kind of personality for that to make sense. You abuse this because you weren't selfish. I'm being selfish. I'm going all out. So I'm clearly the better. I've earned this more. And yet, later on, Lynn castigates Skeletor and said, you could turn King Randor inside out. He'd come running. Why haven't you? Because you're doing all this grandstanding. You want this battle finale. And then in the very final episode, Skeletor actually comes clean and he says, it should be us battling for eternity. Yeah. That's what he actually he doesn't want anyone to come out the victor. He just wants it's like one long marathon sex session. Even <laughs> Lin, even Lynn makes that analogy by saying, Oh, oh, would that I were he man, then you might pay attention to me, sort of thing. Um mm. but here you're getting him saying you've you policed me, and he is turning on your head your head, your preconceptions as a viewer of how, yeah. Adam's doing the responsible thing because Adam and He-Man, they were like Optimus Prime in Transformers. They show you an Optimus Prime was more like man at arms, right? But they still had that. This is what I do because I'm responsible with the power. I earn it because I'm responsible. And by Skeletor saying I'm keyed into what I literally have life over on death powers which i think actually probably came in because he's already a wizard whereas adam wasn't a wizard before um but he he's, he's well he's actually suggesting Arkham. adam could have eliminated him as yeah. well yeah yeah he, he could have done lots of things you didn't you're stupid instead yeah. of asking himself asking why didn't you and he would have given him an answer it's just not the kind of answer that skeletor can relate to in the same way that earlier he went ugh, grief like because what is grief? What is the what are you even grieving over someone? Why? Adam has said the answer in like a countless filmation episodes that Skeletor can never understand that all life is important. Yeah. And that's why Skeletor doesn't get it, which is why Skeletor doesn't get the power. The only yeah. way he the only way Skeletor can get the power is by cheating. 
That's how he got it here. He cheated. He cheated death and he cheated everyone by backstabbing Adam at the moment of transformation. That's the only way he can get the power because he doesn't get it. He doesn't comprehend it. So he's like a child playing with a box of matches. So you could do this. Why didn't you do it? Because I didn't do it because I am who I am. And that's why people follow me. And it's not him who says it. It's Duncan who says it. And even when Duncan tells him that, he, Skeletor just thinks it's a waste of time me talking to you because he just it goes through one out of the other, and it, and yeah, he's got the answers in front of him. He's got Grey Skull. He's got all the secrets. Doesn't mean anything to him because he's not getting gratification. Yep. So Skelcod uh, damns both Fisto and Clamchamp to Subternia instead of Heaven. And, which uh, is a plot point which I'm hoping they'll resolve in the next thing because, um, so far as we know, they're still there. <laughs> yep, yep. So you never know, Fisto yeah. fans. In anger, Adam, Andra, and Tila charge him, but Skelgod just waves his hand and knocks him back reeling. Skelgod begins to mock Adam, saying he's no longer He Man, that he's hardly a man. Which is a great line, too. Yep. And in defiance, in defiance, as Tila and Andra stay on the ground, Adam stands up again. And uh, actor Mark Hamill continues to uh, chew the scenery by saying to Adam, you know, your heroics are hilarious to me. Do you want a fighty fight? Uh, but then he gets scare, uh, scary, serious, and says, I can unmake you with a thought. But you think you can punch your way to a victory? Tell you what, kid, take your best shot. Because he's still dealing with him as if he's He-Man. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's not comprehending no. it. Then Skelgod laughs, but strangely, Adam laughs too. Enough to cause Skelgod to ask, what are we laughing at? <laughs> Even though he's and... the one that started off. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But Adam responds, you see, the sword is just a conduit, but the spark, that was always me. And I've often wondered what kind of fabulous secret powers would be revealed to me if I didn't have the sword, but still said the words. And then he shouts, by the power of Skull, and a spark suddenly appears in his swordless hand. And Skeletor's just going, no. no. And you feel, you feel the weight of this affecting Skeletor. He, he is witnessing the impossible here. He did not know. Was... He thinks he knows all the secrets now, but Adam has one more secret in his bag, you know? Yeah. And from the skies... Um, Adam is engulfed in lightning, and when it dissipates, that is when <laughs> what is left is Prince Adam in his huge, muscled, very incredible Hulk, right? Yeah, type of it's form. Hulk he man, it's he Hulk, <laughs> it's savage Hulk, and uh, Adam roars and it cuts to black, and <laughs> the credits roll now. What a cliffhanger! <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, we had the, these. Here we have these key moments that I said earlier. This show, are they going to do that? Yeah, they went there. I think that was one of the things I wondered as a kid about what would happen if he didn't have the sword because it's still possible. I think probably in the writer's room they said, 
happen? Oh, let's write this down. Let's work into And here we have it. This is this is actually the start of a sort of deconstruction of what is He-Man. Because this is this is the power without the rational mind. So He-Man is the power with Adam's rational mind. Adam, this is the point where you say, where you realize Adam is not just a throwaway character. Adam is what makes He-Man, literally. You would not have, because at this point, you have Adam's rational mind is removed, or it's made dormant. This is the power made flesh, and it doesn't have a target. It will go after anything, but it's it's a Conan the Barbarian moment, and he just has that sort of Godzilla, King Kong roar, and you can tell if Skeletor had a working digestive tract. <laughs> he, he should be wearing a brown loincloth because if anything's gonna, this is probably Skeletor's nightmare. He's had nightmares about this. Yeah, uh, we did have the uh, one of the writers from Masters of the Universe Revelation, writer Tim Sheridan, on this uh, very podcast, and um, it, it doesn't explain this in series, but uh, he explained um, this ability. Uh, this this connection between Adam and the power that it has, he suggested that has grown so strong over the years that, um, with a poor choice of words, residue has remained in him. That makes um, sense. Yeah, that the power has left a little behind in Adam every time, yeah. and and he could feel it, but he didn't quite know what was going to happen you know he's like you said he's always wondered but it's like you've got two like two glasses and you're pouring liquid into one out in out and and there's like you know droplets left inside it and so that's probably giving the the power like a beacon a homing beacon Mm -hmm. so he's he's able yeah that makes a lot of sense now is this ability uniquely adam or do all the other champions before him, you know, ha- had this fabulous secret extra power as well? I, I love that line because it's a callback to the old, you know, fabulous secrets were yeah. revealed to me and they used it appropriately. It's yep. great. It is. It is. And obviously this is going to now haunt Skeletor in future episodes oh God, yeah. of how he did that. But you know what? That marks the end of this episode. So, um, so Eric, do you have any final thoughts regarding Masters of the Universe Revelation uh, cleaved in twain? Um, it was, I mean, it's just one moment that bowls you over from one to the next. And as I say, it's really efficient. Mm-hmm. Like when they escape the army of the dead, they close the door, you think, right, usually this is where the characters have a breather. They work out a plan, and already these Trojan horse time bombs, nope, you don't even have time to do that. It's a one hell of a roller coaster, but it's an emotional roller coaster too. And for an episode which starts out so spiritually serene, I mean, it is a sacred moment, and it it ends where the sacred has been so violated that it comes back in furious rage and it makes 
the violator it's become the nightmare for the essence of evil there's a lot of things that just weave back on themselves in this this episode and um yeah it, it's it's like if you had to introduce people to like this is the episode to watch it, this certainly is up there on those those examples you get like the best of revelation and it's this kind of because so much happens uh, but it's not just flash in the pan there are consequent there are ramifications yeah. and in some in some instances there are ramifications where you realize in hindsight they had to happen you wouldn't have thing got things resolved in the way they did if things had certain things had not played out um the other interesting thing about this is that you you do find out more and more is it's like the jedi it's coming more and more into what is the power because in star wars you have the force this is very much a similar like the power is what you might call like the the nuclear blast the seed for that in star wars the force is like the um the consequences of it it's influence over things it's more subtle here the power is the power the cosmic power channeled into one single but vessel mm. vessel would be a better way of doing it but it's about how it manifests and here you are getting characters who've always hungered for the power they are starting to wonder this is not what i thought it was but you're getting in a way where you you're swept up with it as a viewer as the audience and it's giving us payoff which we haven't even considered we needed since the 80s but if you were with it since the 80s as i was um it felt so rewarding and it made you yeah. go yeah give me the next one i do need to know what happens here and it's it's answering questions you've either had idle thoughts about or you haven't realized oh yeah what would happen if but there's payoff and i i just love how it threads things through it doesn't shy away from consequences it might not do things as you personally would have done but i don't think you can accuse this show of playing in the sandpit and not knowing what to do it's yeah. um it's it's a rewarding viewing experience and this episode particularly i agree and with that we're going to wrap it up eric um we actually went long but i'm not surprised this is what no. my, but my buddy eric end up doing you know we just end up going on and on and on and Hopefully, hopefully it's been informative and um, hopefully it's well, been informative and enjoyable. And Eric, I always appreciate your insight and your intelligence and your um, articulation and perspective. And um, I want to thank you for coming on, buddy. Appreciate it. Anytime. All right. That's a wrap all. So again, we'd like to uh, thank Eric for joining us today and um, he's been an absolute pleasure. And I'd like to thank our wonderful community out there for listening and watching this podcast. Now, if you enjoy seven show, hours of it, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I'm trying to wrap it up. 
Now, if you enjoy this show, please show us your support by liking and subscribing to our streams. You can always drop us a line, too, by sending us an email to foraternia at gmail.com. We really do love the feedback. And as always, please visit us at foraternia.com for the latest updates and news, as well as our community forum and links to our social media pages like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram that can help you stay up to date with all the Masters of the Universe, Masters of the Universe Revelation, Revolution, and Masterverse content. So that's it. I want to thank you again for listening and let the power return. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Nah.